we have been spending the last so many months, uh, five months, almost six months totally now, looking at the shadow of Christ, which is the, the first segment in a, a greater um, context of focusing on the Christ. And through this time, we have gone all the way from creation, all the way to last week looking at Isaiah 9, looking at the, the child who was born, the son who was given. And we've seen Christ as the creator, seen him as the, the, the Lord of Sabbath, the seed of the woman, the redeemer, the seed of Abraham. And you can go through all those and see how those, those are. And again, those are just a portion of the, 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 the pretenses, the portents, the, the shadows of Christ that are in the Old Testament. We could spend more time looking at things that David has declared, more things that Moses has declared regarding of the coming of Messiah. Um, we could look at things that Zechariah has declared and how Yahweh said, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And so, But for the sake of time, as we go through this series, we're going to conclude today with looking at Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, um, and looking at Jesus Christ being that, that suffering servant. Beginning in two weeks from now, on July 3rd, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the life of Christ. We'll be having Christmas in July, looking at uh, the, the birth of Christ. So come prepared to be singing some nice Christmas carols, and um, we'll set the air conditioning at 30 or something. Anyways, I <laughs> um, <laughs> promise, yeah. No, well, you know air conditioners only go down so far anyway, so, but anyways, um, but so we'll, we'll do a little Christmas in July thing, and then we're going to begin looking at the life of Christ, and then we'll begin looking at the reflection of Christ after that. And so we want to continue our focus on Christ. And honestly, as I look at it and I project this thing out, it's past Christmas that we do all this anyway. So we're into next year with this series as we look at his return and, um, and, and, and those things, and so, which is a good thing. We want to continue to focus on Christ. But today, we want to look at this suffering servant, this passage which probably is the clearest of any other passage in the Old Testament about the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Now, that's a big word, propitiatory. Um, but a propitiation is a what? Anybody know? A substitution, a payment. A payment and substitution for somebody else. It's pretty simple. Um, you pay. It's somebody else has paid for you um, what you deserved or what you did. So as we look at this, though, we've been looking at the practical side of the passage, and then we look at the prophetical side. And so today is no different. We want to look at the practical side of this application in Isaiah 53. And actually, our context, we want to begin in Isaiah 52, um, looking at, beginning at verse 13. But Isaiah 53 as a whole, everybody knows it. And Mark read it earlier. It's all about the suffering servant. And so, as we, we look at it, though, I want to kind of just step back and look at it as a whole about how does this apply to me. I mean, I know we're going to talk about the suffering servant and what he's done for me. But first of all, what I see is God's plan in suffering. God's plan in suffering. As you read, as Mark read through Isaiah 53, and as we read it together, and as we, we listened to it as, as it was read as well, you can't help but noticing that the whole passage is about what? Not just by Christ but his suffering, suffering, suffering. And as, we, as Mark read, do you look down in verse 10, at, at the, at, at, as we see all this suffering going on, all this suffering going on, we read in the New King James, yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. You were reading from the ESV or the NASV? NASV, and the NASV says it was God's, God's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's the idea. It was God's desire... For, for Yahweh in the flesh, for the Messiah, when he came, to be bruised, to be crushed, to suffer. God's plan in suffering. Listen, many times we, we consider suffering as, as apart from God. We see that as something that Satan has brought on, but it's not. Sometimes it's a part of the plan of, of God. Now, sometimes... You shared earlier, John, you know, in your testimony that sometimes we make decisions that have improper consequences or suffering. And so sometimes the suffering is brought on by ourselves. And sometimes, yes, Satan is allowed to bring suffering into our life. We know from the book of Job that um, Satan came before Job one day, and, 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 or before God one day, and God said, have you seen my servant Job? There's none such like him as righteous as he is on the earth, and and Satan said, that's only because you haven't let me mess with him. That's because you haven't let me touch him. He said, and God said, what? Go ahead. You can do whatever you want to him, but you just can't touch him. Now, think about that. 
then as the tornado and everything else came, as, as Job lost his family, as, as um, he lost his herds, he lost everything else, ultimately we could say that Satan brought that on, right? But, that's exactly right, not necessarily initiated, it was allowed by God. He, he brought it up, he brought it up, but Satan couldn't have a hand on Job unless God said what? You can have him. And even later, when, when Satan comes before God again, God says, have you seen my servant Job? You've messed with him, and he still hasn't what? He still hasn't denied me. And Satan said what? That's because you haven't let me touch him. Skin for skin. Let me touch him. He says, go ahead, you can touch him, you just can't what? Kill him. But in all that, when Job says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job did not what? He didn't sin. He didn't sin by declaring that ultimately that that suffering came from, from God. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. You can keep your finger in Isaiah if you choose, if you'd like to. We'll be coming back there at points. Um, especially in the, the second half as we go through it. Even more so. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read about Jesus Christ and we read about His suffering. Beginning at verse 21, Peter says to the, to the believers who were scattered abroad, He says, for this you were called. You were called. This is why God called you. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Does that sound familiar? comes from where? Isaiah 53. For you were like what? Sheep going astray. Sound familiar? Isaiah 53. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we're told that God called us for a reason. Now, you don't want to know the reason. I promise you, I don't want to know the reason. (laughs) What did he call us for? To suffer with Christ. Suffering is not foreign to the body of Christ. It may be to American Christians. But it's not to the body of Christ. Get on the, the, the list of Voice of the Martyrs. Read the accounting of what is going on in the Church of Jesus Christ around the world. How many believers are being imprisoned, are being persecuted, are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. Suffering is a part of God's plan. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. It's a part of God's plan. As a believer, our response should be what? To receive all things from the Lord with what? Thanksgiving. In Philippians chapter 4, we read, Do all things with, um, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for what? For nothing. When trial and tribulation come your way, don't be anxious about it. But rather with prayer and supplication and what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? I can be thankful for trials. That's what the Word of God says. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Why? Why did Christ leave me this example that I should walk in it? Why should I be thankful for, for the sufferings that that he is uh, allowed to come to my path. Well, begin here at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we have ourselves been comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffered. 
Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so you also will be partakers of consolation. Paul says that we have undergone these trials and these tribulations so that we can experience the comfort of God. So that, when you go through the trials and tribulations, we can be of great comfort to you. So that you can learn to be a comfort to others as they go through their trials and tribulations, so that they can learn how to be a comfort to others as they go through their trials and tribulations, so they can learn how to comfort others. Do you get it? It's the path that doesn't end. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. And God allows some suffering to come to us to purify us. Hebrews chapter 12 is very clear. That if you are his child, and you are not experiencing chastisement, assumably for your sin, okay, then you're what? You're not his. You're really not his. But if you're walking in sin, then God has promised that he will bring suffering into your life so that you don't continue to walk in a path that is not in accordance with his righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, and you can turn there, Philippians chapter 3, we read where Paul states from the, from the get-go regarding his, his pedigree and, that, um, and who he was and that he was circumcised in the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the, the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes through all these things about himself. But he says, in beginning of verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, but rubbish, but things that are thrown into the dogs, that I may know him, that I may have righteousness which is not of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith, and that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, but he doesn't stop there. We'd like to stop there. And also in what? The fellowship of his sufferings. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, listen, I want to know Christ. And then he continues on, he says, and so I therefore I press toward the mark for the price of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Right? And he says, I want to know him. But I know I can only know him not only through the power of the resurrection, but accordingly in the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of suffering. The koinonia. The oneness. The all for one and the one for all. Jesus said, don't worry about it when you suffer on the earth. Don't worry when men revile you. Because ultimately, they're reviling you for what reason? For my namesake. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when men revile you for my namesake. The question is, Are you suffering according to the plan of God or are you suffering because of your own failures? Suffering is going to come. But there's two different um, paths of arriving at that suffering. One is because it is the will of God in your life because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. The other is because of our own foolishness. If we know that we suffer, and this comes from 1 Peter 2 as well, you can check me out with this later, but if we know that we suffer for doing righteous, for doing right, then we will be what? We'll be blessed. But if we suffer for doing what's wrong, then there is no gain in that at all. So, God's plan is suffering. It's God's plan for us to suffer. We saw that in 1 Peter 2, 2 Corinthians 1, and Philippians 3. But secondly, we see God's plan and salvation in Isaiah 53. And again, we know it's all through it. So back there in Isaiah 53, it's God's plan, very clearly, that Messiah was going to come, Messiah was going to die, and we'll talk about that in more detail as we look at the prophetic side of it, but this Messiah was going to do that. In Ephesians chapter 1, you all know probably this very well, it says, Blessed be the Lord our God, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, even as He has chosen us in Him before the foundations of the world were laid. That before God ever made the foundations of the world, when was that? Genesis 1. 1. I mean, before He said, let there be light, He made the foundations of the earth, right? So in Genesis 1.1 we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, that, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with all spiritual blessings, in, that before you laid the foundations of the world were laid, that you were chosen in him before the foundations of the world were laid. Which means that before the foundations of the world were laid, before Genesis 1.1 occurred. You get it? Before Genesis 1.1 ever happened. What had happened? God determined that Jesus Christ would come and die on a cross. Now that's mind-boggling to me. Because Genesis 1-1 very clearly occurs before Genesis 3-1. Would you agree with that? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's a, it's a math thing. I know this is hard math here, but, but, you know, but the creation of the heavens and the earth clearly occurred before Adam and Eve sinned. Which means that God knew before he ever made Adam that Adam would what? Would sin. And so before Adam ever sinned, and before God ever made Adam, and before God ever made the earth, he had already determined in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Son would come, be incarnate, would be abused, and die for my salvation. That's a pretty cool thing. God's plan for salvation is eternal. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we read John saying to the believers, he says, My little children, I write these things that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation, that's our big word, propitiation. He's a propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So God's plan for salvation not only began before day one, not only began before the foundation of the world, but when he established that plan, he also established that plan for a universal context. Now, I'm not saying a universal salvation, do you understand? But what I'm saying is that everybody on the face of the earth has their sins paid for right now. That's like saying there is a bank that holds a million dollars in it for every single one of us. All we have to do is do what? Go to the bank and get it. But too many people don't believe that there's a million dollars in that bank account. And so they go on living like what? Paupers, when they could have a million dollars. Now I know if everybody on the earth had a million dollars, we'd all be paupers because it would be commonplace. But you, you, you get my point, okay? And so salvation is available to who? To the whole world. Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, his payment for sin, was efficacious, big word, effective enough for the whole world. It paid for the sins of the whole world. That was God's plan. Romans 10, turn with me back to Romans 10. We talked about this passage a little bit in um, Sunday school on a, uh, a side note. But in Romans 10, verse 4, we read, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. And then drop down to verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, For whoever believes on him and will not, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's God's plan before the foundations of the world were laid for every man on the face of the earth to all who will what? Call upon his name. It's a pretty simple plan, isn't it? You don't have to do a thing. God did it all before he ever made the heavens and the earth. And then he did it all when he came to the earth to pay for it. All you have to do is what? Believe. I don't think it could get much simpler than that. All you have to do by faith is commit your heart to Jesus Christ. 
in the salvation, the, 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 the sacrifice that he's made for you? The question is, are you willing to do so? Now, that's the practical side. God's plan for suffering. God's plan for salvation. You know, there was a book written years ago, um, Trials, Don't Treat Them as Intruders. And it's the same thing. In fact, James says in James 1, um, uh, now I'm messing up, James 1, 1, when you fall into divers temptations, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, you've got to consider that joy. It's something that God has allowed for a reason, to purify us. But let's look at this prophetical side. And um, clearly you can see with how many blanks that we have a little bit of time that we want to spend in here. But go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And actually Isaiah 52 is where we want to start in verse 13. And we want to look at this, this suffering servant who was to come. In beginning of verse 13, Isaiah 52, we read, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, in his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. First of all, we see in this passage, the ministry of this servant, his ministry. And what do we know about his ministry? Well, first of all, it's going to be marked, you can look at verse 13, it's going to be marked as being one who is what? Prudent. He is, has wisdom. He's going to be marked with, with great wisdom. He's going to have great prudence. Keep your finger there. Turn with me back to, to Luke 2. Luke 2, verse 41. We're going to talk about this passage in a few weeks from now um, when we look at the youth of Christ, when we're consider, considering the life of Christ and we're looking at his youth. But beginning in verse 41 of Luke 2, it says, His parents, that's Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, they returned. The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now it was so that after three days, could you imagine their panic? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were what? Were astonished at his understanding in his answers. So not only was he asking questions and listening, he was also what? He was debating and giving answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in, his, in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and who? Amen. Jesus wowed them. Now, back in Isaiah 52, we read, not only shall he deal prudently, and not only then because of that being ex, 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 exalted and extolled very high, but in verse 14 we're told that just as you were, just as many as were what? astonished or marveled or amazed at you. And so, Jesus marveled the people with his what? With his wisdom. With his wisdom. Do you get it? I mean, he wowed them. Not with his prowessness in sports. He wowed them. Not with his prowessness at, at word games. He wowed them with his understanding of the word of God. Do you get it? Now, I don't think that we should take pride in ourselves in the Word of God. And it's something that, I honestly, I, I, I really I, I, I work at. Because it's so easy when you study the Word of God and you know, you've had the privilege of learning Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that. And people go, wow, where does he get that from? It's nothing of me. And so I've got to, I've got to continue to work at that. It's not me. It's not me. It's, 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 what a blessing it is of the Lord. But honestly... It is a pump on the other side. It is the exciting side when I get to share the Word of God with people. 
and, 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 they're, and they're asking questions, and, and I, can get, I can give them the answers because of, of the, the studying and the memorizing. And, and, the, and again, it's not because of Bob, and you know, be careful that you're not slapping your own back too much, you know. But what a joy it is. And so I want to encourage you on the other side is that this holds true for us as well. I mean, Jesus was 12 years old, and he's in the temple talking to scholars, and he's wowed them. He's wowing them because he's doing what? He's continually going back to the Word of God. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Now, this is a long passage, and so we're going to skim this, okay? And I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that you have um, some uh, titles, subtitles, and stuff over your, your paragraphs, because I don't, we don't have time to read all this, okay? But from Matthew 21, verse 23, all the way chapter, through chapter 22, verse 46, okay? You can see if you have subtitles that above um, verse 23, mine says Jesus' authority is challenged. Mine says questioned, but, but challenged or questioned, okay? And you can see in verse 23, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? And then so Jesus responds to them, okay, and, and answers them and, and basically shuts them up, okay? And then he, you can see he gives them the, a couple parables, and he continues talking. We go into chapter 22. He gives them another parable. And these are parables against the Pharisees. I mean, he's, he's putting these things right at the chief priests and the Pharisees, okay? And they know it. They know he's talking about them. And they're really getting aggravated, right? And so they're doing, they want to do anything they can to shut him up, to prove him as a false teacher. So we get to verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now, politics makes strange bedfellows, right? Okay. I mean, here you got the Pharisees, who Jesus has said, unless your, your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? And you got the Herodians, or who? I mean, they're the secularists. I mean, these are the guys who are following Herod. These are the guys that the Pharisees hate. But they both have one thing in common. They hate Jesus. That's right. And so they gather together. Here you got the, the fundamentalists. I mean, I, I understand I consider myself a fundamentalist today, but in, in that day, okay? You got the fighting fundamentalists, the Pharisees of that day, joining together with the utter liberals. Okay, so you got that extreme Republicans and those extreme Democrats. They're all coming together. Could you imagine that in, in the United States? You think, wow, it'd have to be really something. Jesus is really something. And it's just like that today. If there's something that will get the extremes together, it's to shut you up talking about Jesus Christ. Mark my words, it's going to happen. And so they get together with the Herodians, and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true. Doesn't that make you barf? I mean, I could just see Jesus being the valley girl. Gag me with a spoon. You know? You guys from California get it. Anyways, and it says, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God and truth. <laughs> sometimes I just laugh when I read the word of God anyways uh, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men tell us therefore what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not and so Jesus wows them again he gives them an answer where they go now what do you say and so they walk away right and so he's got the chief priests and the elders they ask the question he shut them up the Pharisees and Herodians come he shuts them up verse 23 the same day the what the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. They say, listen, the chief priests and the, Pharise- the elders couldn't do it. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't do it. So what? So now it's, it's our turn. So the Sadducees come and they say, teacher, verse 24, Moses said that if a man dies having no children his, and his brother shall marry his wife and so on and so forth, and you know about the, the woman then who was married to seven different guys and they want to know in the resurrection whose wife shall he be? And Jesus shuts them up. He says, this, you were because you don't know the... The scriptures, right? And so we get all the way down. Verse 34, we see the Pharisees come back again. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. So now they're going to come back and they're going to try it again. And then verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So now he's going to come back and he's going to ask them a question. They've all asked the questions. He's answered it. He shut them up. They can't figure out what to, what to do. So Jesus turns around and says, okay, let me ask you a question. Whose son is the Christ? 
And they said, the son of David. He says, then how does David say in the spirit, call him Lord? Saying, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Why? Because he astonished them. He caused them to marvel with his prudence, with his wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools reject wisdom and understanding. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where do you learn the fear of the Lord from? The Word of God. You really want to have wisdom? You want to have prudence? You want to wow the masses? Now understand, they still wanted to kill Jesus. They they were wild. They were marveled. They They couldn't deal with the guy. They couldn't figure out what to say. The guy was incredible. So because of that, they decided to kill him. So, go back to the plan of suffering, the plan of salvation, right? It, God, God's purpose in calling you was what? That you should suffer with Christ. Not for doing wrong, but for doing righteousness. And the, the sad thing is, in our day, a day when we call what is evil good and what is good evil, that there's going to come time in your life, if you are standing for what is right, you will be persecuted for it. You will suffer because you stand for the righteousness of God. For the testimony of Jesus Christ, you will suffer. Now, if you bring it on yourself, I had a woman who worked for me years ago when I was in the military, so that tells you how long ago that was. Um, yes, they did have a military back when I was that age. And um, Yeah, even when you were, Rodney, wow. They were in canoes or something, I don't know, anyways. Um, they had cans. That was Signal Corps back then. They had two cans with a string between it. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm killing you. Anyways, and so I had a woman who brought persecution on herself. She wouldn't do her job. She didn't, I mean, she was my employee. She didn't do her job. She professed to be a believer, but I, as her boss, had a fire. But she considered that persecution for the name of Jesus. That's not persecution for the name of Jesus. If you don't do your job, you brought persecution and suffering on yourself. Do you get it? You should do your work job so well that the only reason they're persecuting you is for the name of Jesus. Do you get it? Does that make sense? And um, we've got to be careful because sometimes we bring the suffering on ourselves, and it's not because of the name of Jesus. Well, Jesus' ministry was marked with wisdom and wonder. What about us? Well, let's go on. Let's talk now about his, his rejection. We see this in, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, where it says, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We're told in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was God, right? And we're told that he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Let's change the words just a little bit. He came unto his own, and his own what? Rejected him. They rejected him. Think about it. Even at his birth, well, again, we'll maybe talk about this a little bit, a side note, in two weeks from now. But regarding his birth, the, the wise men, the magi coming from the east, they were, they were potentially Gentiles and even pagans from that perspective who, who gave credence to the testimonies, the prophecies of God's word, and they came to see he who was born king of the Jews. And when he, they came into Jerusalem and it caused a stir because everybody heard that these guys were in town looking for the Messiah who was to be born. The one who was to be born king of the Jews, they understood that to be Messiah. So Herod brings them in. And so when Herod gets the, the, the testimony from them, he sends to the chief priests. And the chief priest says to him, where is this guy, where is this Messiah to be born? The chief priest said, we don't know. We're going to go search it out. They knew immediately. They said, oh, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. For it says in the word of God, da 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 And so they knew exactly, right? They knew the prophecies. They knew everything. What would you have expected the, the chief priests and the Pharisees at this moment to do? The scribes. To do what? 
To go. To go. To go worship. To be excited. Messiah is born. But what did they do? In that moment, they rejected Messiah. The mad guy went. But nobody else did. The shepherds were told, and they went, and they told everybody. Would you have expected stinking shepherds to be the witnesses, or do you expect chief priests and Pharisees to do that? You'd think it would be the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. But in the rejection, we're told, verse 1, that first of all, the message is going to be what? Rejected. The message will be rejected. In Romans 10, you can turn there later, but we, we read an accounting coming from um, chapter 52 of Isaiah. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's verse 7 of chapter 52. Who proclaim peace and bring good tidings of great things. Who proclaim salvation and say to Zion, Your God reigns. And so we're told that we are those people in today's realm. We're the ones who proclaim the good tidings. But Isaiah says, but who is what? Who's believed our report? When you go out there and you proclaim Jesus Christ and you give them good tidings of great joy that God reigns and Jesus Christ has come to pay for, the, for their debt of the of, pay for the, their debt so they can be saved, what do the majority of people do? They reject it. They don't want to hear anything about that. Do you know what the flip side of telling somebody that they can be saved is? That they're not, and they're, they're going to hell. <laughs> so most people, when you try to tell them that they can be saved, they hear what? You're going to hell. And they, how do they react? Upset. Close the door. Whatever it is. That's exactly right. And so as I shared in the testimony time earlier, it's just amazing to see the different op- the way people receive or reject the message when we, we deliver it. But the fact is we're told up ahead of time that the report, the message, would be rejected. And not only because just the message, but because the message was about who? It was about Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ was rejected. Go back to, to Matthew, I'm sorry, to Mark 8.31, where Jesus um, prophesies of this rejection. Mark 8.31. And then we'll go to Matthew again. We're going to kind of bop between Isaiah 53 and Matthew as we look at Jesus' um, end days there. In, but in Mark 8, verse 31, we read, And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days again, ri- after three days, rise again. So he says that he's going to suffer all these things and then he's going to be, he's going to be rejected. Well, okay, now turn back to Matthew 26, okay? Continuing in the, the area which we were as we considered his um, wowing the people. And in Matthew 26, we have the, the timing of the, 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 the Last Supper. We have um, him being in the garden. Um, and then the arrest. And as a part of this arrest, in verse 62, we read, And the high priest arose and said to him, that is Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. No, he spoke what? Truth. Isn't these the guys who just said to, it came to him a couple chapters beforehand? That's why I laughed. And said, we know that you speak what? Truth. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he's spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, you've heard it from his own mouth. You've heard his own blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and they beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Wow, that's pretty, pretty incredible. Tell us the truth. So he did. We know, the teacher, that you're the one who what? Says truth. So he tells them the truth, and what do they say? You're a liar. We reject the truth. We reject the truth. And so his rejection leads then into his trial. 
as well, not only before the Sanhedrin, but also then as well before um, before um, Pilate. And so they, as part of that trial, we saw in verse 67, they spat in his face and they struck him with the, the, the pains. And so he goes through in chapter 27, we continue on with these. In verse 11, Jesus standing before Pilate, this is Matthew 27, he says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, they hadn't given up, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor, what? Marvel. Kind of goes back to that first thing about the, uh, the, his ministry and his, the wisdom in Marvel. It says, Now the feast of... The feast, now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they had wished, and at that time they had a notor- notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called to Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But when the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes and they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus, the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said, What do you want? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Messiah. Remember Messiah. Same thing we're talking about in Isaiah 53. They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. Crucify him. Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Wouldn't it be nice if you really could do that? Verse 26, he released Barabbas to them, and then he scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. I I washed my hands of this man's innocent blood, but then I'm going to have him scourged and handed over to you so you can crucify him. It doesn't work that way. You can't sit on the fence. You're either for him or you're against him. Does it make sense? What did Pilate declare? I'm against him. Even though he knew he was what? Innocent and righteous. His wife even came and said, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. His trial was a mockery, but he wore with it. His death, what do we know about his death then? It was, as we're declared, by crucifixion. And so he continues on there in Matthew 27, verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so we see, and I I apologize, I've been failing to read Isaiah 53 as we've been doing this and showing how they parallel together. But look at verse 8. Of 53. Keep your finger in Matthew because we'll keep coming back there. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generations? Okay, that's part of the trial part. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was, he was crucified, okay? And we're told in verse 9, and they made his grave with the what? With the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Why? Because as he was on the cross and as he died, who did he die with? Two thieves. But then we continue on in, in, the, in the book of Matthew. Where is he buried? He's buried in a tomb that was built by who? By Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. And so in his burial, we see this, this fulfilled. And so on these other ones, let me go back real quick. In his rejection, we saw that. But his trial, we see his trial in verses 4 through 8a, and you can read those later. And then we see his death as well. And so in Isaiah 53, this is all prophesied. That's why we're going through this. And it's all fulfilled specifically in the book of Matthew as well as others. And then after the burial, we see his what? His resurrection. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We talk about the will of the God. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, what's the next thing though? He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Now wait a second. If this guy was going to die, if the Messiah was going to die, how does he see his seed? And how is his days prolonged? He has to be what? Brought back to life. And the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. And again, this is the will of the Lord. 
Okay? And it shall be the will of the Lord to prosper his hand. He shall see, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. And so, in the resurrection, we see that Christ will have this intervention. We continue reading, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ, this this Messiah that is prophesied, which we know is Jesus Christ, was going to come, and when he was going to come, he would experience the death, burial, the resurrection, in order that he could do what? Offer a sacrifice that would be intercessory for transgressors. That's you and me. The big word? Propitiation. He would be the propitiation for our sins. And as we saw in 1 John 2, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you believe it? I mean, do you honestly believe it? I'm not talking about, you know, fire insurance and have you, you know, said the sinner's prayer and that kind of stuff. But do you honestly believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, and that it's through Christ alone that you have redemption and salvation? Okay? Take it the next step. Do you honestly believe that it's through Christ alone that your neighbor will have redemption? Do you honestly believe that it's through Christ alone that, it's, that your workmates can have redemption? What about the person in Walmart? What about that person who just gags you when you see them? You know the person I'm talking about. I don't know what it is that gags you when you see them. But I, 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 I have that person in my brain pictured right now. I saw one who totally fulfilled everything I ever thought about it, and I was in a and I was in a Burger King down on the south end of town about a week and a half ago. I mean, God let I mean this person walked in and it was the total fulfillment of everything that made me just cringe, you know. And I won't say what it is, but anyways, I just and and I just had it. And I didn't I couldn't even look. I mean, it just it just gagged me so much. And and but I had to re, be reminded at that moment. Not that I had to be reminded, but you know what I'm saying. That Jesus what. Jesus died for that person. And Jesus loves that person just as he loves me. And as much as I am repulsed by the external, the tent of that person, it's the person who lives inside that God loves. And that Jesus came and suffered all these things to die for. And one day, their corruptible body that was gaggy to me hopefully, if they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, will put on what? Incorruption. Just like my corruptible body will put on incorruption. And this mortal will put on immortality. Do you get it? So many times, we're, we're, we're gauging people and, and judging people on the external. Jesus didn't do that. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that for you? I mean, if Jesus was going to gauge you based upon your righteousness, he wouldn't die for you. But he loves you. So, in conclusion, are you going through a period of suffering? If you are, are you trusting in the Lord? Now, that suffering could be from multiple things. And we said some of it may be brought on yourself, but God can do what? God can use all things, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay? God worked something awesome in the life of Job. Job lost everything except his wife. But in the end, the book of Job, we, re- we read that what? He was multiplied even more than he ever had. Now, that doesn't mean that he never didn't miss his kids that he lost. Did that make sense? He still had his memory. But God still blessed him through it all. God will do that for us. Are you trusting him? What is your ultimate desire? Is it to know him? I mean, honestly. If, if I was to ask you today, what is your greatest purpose in life? Now, if you know the Westminster Catechism, you know the correct answer is to say what? 
you're supposed to glorify God. You know, do all to the glory of God. So therefore, my ultimate purpose is to glorify God. Okay, get rid of the get rid of the book answers. You know, Jesus, God, Bible. You know, if you were caught off guard, and someone asked you, "What's your ultimate purpose in life?" Mine is to know Him. I want to know Him. I'm not content with just knowing about Him. And I know that this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God. But Paul said, it's not just a simple little thing. It's not just the, the entryway knowledge. But you can grow in that knowledge. And you can, you can know Him more and more. And I don't want the sufferings. <laughs> so if there's any way I can find out what that, 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 that part of the knowledge is without having to go through the sufferings, I, I'll take that shortcut. You know, God, let me have the shortcut. But the reality is that God allows us to go through sufferings so that we can know Him better. What extent do you want to know Him? I mean, be honest with yourself, because God knows you anyway. And God knows your heart. Do you really, beyond everything else, want to know Christ even more and more every day? Do you want to know Him better tomorrow than you know Him today? In what extent are you willing to go to in order to know Him even better? And finally, the man of sorrows has paid the penalty of your sins. Have you by faith accepted that payment? Again, I've shared it many times. We don't give the altar call. You're not going to come down. I'm not going to ask you to say a sinner's prayer. It's all between you and God. The Holy Spirit's working right now. I have no doubt in my mind. Not because I preach, because the Holy Spirit's faithful. And whether it's working in your heart toward um, repentance and knowing Him stronger, or whether it's working in your heart that you know right now that if you died right now, you'd go to hell. And that's between you and God to respond to that. But my challenge to you is if you're here today and you don't know God as your Savior, that you give your heart to Him. Because you don't have a promise that tomorrow's going to happen. And I don't mean it as a fear thing. This is the reality. What is your ultimate goal? What are you doing with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, it is mind-boggling to me to, to consider that before the foundations of the world were laid, that you had established the plan already that Christ would die for us. That you had determined that you would suffer for me. For me. That you would come, that you would be mocked, that you would be rejected, that you would be scourged, that you would be spit upon, that you would be beaten, that you would be punched, that you would be crucified, that you would have a crown of thorns placed on your head and a spear rammed up your side for me that I may know you. God, I want to know you. I want to know you in the power of that resurrection and even in the fellowship of your sufferings. You, the man of sorrows, who was despised and rejected of men, but who lives in glory and reigns on high, you are the ultimate of all things. You are my creator, God. You are my savior, my redeemer. You are he who intercedes before me and before the throne of our Father. Lord, I look forward to the day of dwelling with you when this body of sin will be done away with, when we can live in your presence, in your purity and in your holiness giving you the praise and the glory amongst the, the angels and amongst the, the four and twenty elders and the thousands upon thousands from every tongue and tribe and nation, declaring your praise because you have redeemed us to yourself and to the Father. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.